if you will. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. and The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now that we've breathed in God's word, will you bow your heads and pray with me as we breathe out what he has spoken to us? Lord, I thank you this morning that we have a great call to slow down, to relax, to look to you, to put away our anxieties, our concerns, our worries, all the things that are beyond our control, and look to your generosity and find joy. Thank you for this passage today, Lord. The deep, deep well of mystery that is in it. Why Jesus did this sign What does it signify to us? What is the most important thing that we need to get out of this passage today? Big questions, Lord. I'm trusting that your spirit is working and will continue to work as we consider these things to reveal to us our need to look to your generosity, our need to find joy in you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ today, that they might come to know him through this passage, not through a sermon, but through your word through the life-giving breath, what you've inspired and preserved for years and years and years. We thank you, Lord. Ask that you give us a singular focus on Christ now for his glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, you heard it from the children's Bible already. This very, you know, it's interesting moving back to that. That was called the Beginner's Bible. And the one that I usually read to my kids from is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the Beginner's Bible is very, like I said, it's very factual, right? And it just kind of ends very abruptly. It's like, Jesus did this sign. God gave him great power to prove that he is the Son of God. It's just straightforward, right? It's exactly what John the Apostle, the author of John chapter 2 that we're reading today, wants us to know From this passage, a very simple and yet profound bulldozer of a truth in your life. I imagine you didn't wake up and come to church today to just have somebody stand in front of you and say, Jesus is the Son of God, and then sit down and close the service off. And I'm not going to do that. But in one sense, it wouldn't be too off from the main point of the Bible itself, not just the book of John, to simply stand up and say that. Jesus is the Son of God. 
everything in the scriptures prove that that statement is absolutely true. In seeing our passage today, though, we're going to focus on the abundant joy that we find in this best wine. You heard it in the end of the passage, right? The master of the feast goes to the bridegroom and says, you're breaking all of our traditions. You're breaking all of our expectations. Everything's backwards. He's not condemning him for it. He's just amazed. Everyone else serves the best food first, the best wine first, and then when they run out, they dig into the back of the refrigerator and then find that stuff that's borderline expired and bring it out because it's the last resort. But what has Jesus done here? What is the meaning of this sign, this miracle of changing water to wine? It's unique, isn't it, against the other miracles that we think of when we consider Jesus' miracles? Usually when he does a sign or a miracle along with his teaching, he's healing somebody, he's casting out a demon. He's doing something to fix something that was wrong in a person's life, particularly related to their health. And yet right here, this first sign that we have doesn't seem to be doing anything on the surface, but keep the party going. This is the first sign of seven signs that John records for us. He's unique amongst the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that he only gives us these seven signs or seven wonders, seven miracles. The other gospels are just chock full of them, aren't they? But John picks just seven things. First, this, this changing water to wine. Secondly, in chapter 4, we'll see an official son be healed. Then in chapter 5, we'll see a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda be healed. Then in chapter 6, we'll see him uh, miraculously produce an abundance of bread and fish and feed many, many people. In chapter 6, again, we see him meeting his disciples by walking on the water in chapter 9, he heals a man who's born blind. And then finally in chapter 11, the last miracle before the cross, he raises Lazarus from the dead. You might imagine, even in just thinking about what those signs and miracles are, that these were very intentionally chosen for the book that we're reading. Don't you think? He meant to pick those. He didn't just say, hey, let's throw Lazarus in at the end. Hey, let's throw the walking on water thing. No, these are all very important. And so this, what John says about this sign of changing the water into wine is that it was his first sign, but that Greek word could also mean it was the chief sign or the primary sign. What does a sign do? A sign points to something else. And this is exactly why I think this is, one of, this is the first miracle that John points to in his gospel. Because this sign of water being turned to wine could on the surface level look like Jesus is just kind of there to miraculously fix all of your problems, to make your life a little bit easier. Wouldn't it be inconvenient if they ran out of wine at your wedding, if they ran out of food, if they ran out of the things that they needed? Somebody might have to go to the store and fix that. Obviously, there's a lot more at stake in the lives of the families that are performing, that are hosting this wedding feast, and even more at stake in Jesus' apparent hesitancy to resolve the solution. So we're going to look at this in three sections, verses 1 through 5. We're going to call a wineless wedding. We're going to see our problem as we come into this. In verses 6 through 9, we'll see the pure provider, who is Jesus, and what he does to fix this problem. And then in verses 10 through 12, we see that in his, we see actually a superior sign 
than exactly what they see on the surface level or what only a few people got to see was the truth of all of this. But ultimately, in all this passage, it seems that the Lord is calling us to see the glory of Christ. Did you notice that in the end in verse 11? Sorry, yeah, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is in line with John chapter 21 where John explains all these things were written down so that you might believe and in believing you might have eternal life in his name. So he points out at the end of the story the disciples believed in him because of this sign. It's going to go deeper than just simply saying, boy, that was a nice thing that you did. You sure fixed their immediate problem. Jesus sees that in doing anything, that he's going to do, that his glory is going to be revealed, and there's at least going to be a shadow of what his ultimate mission is. So Jesus shows us his glory by making things new and making things better than they were before. And for us, because of of the fact that we see his abundant salvation for us at the cross, we must find our satisfaction and joy in his greater wine, the thing that he has prepared for us to fully satisfy us. So a wineless wedding. What is the setting here? Cana. It's a very tiny, tiny town. Less than probably 100 people living in that town. So when you think about this wedding happening, you're thinking about a lot of people coming to one house to celebrate really what is the the pinnacle of parenting, this last thing that you're going to do before your children go off and become and start their own family. Well, the city of Cana is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. It's about 10 miles north north of Nazareth. And so, of course, where Jesus grew up, he's, of course, going to know people from here. Uh, the fact that he's been invited and his mom has been invited makes it very clear this is a, either a relative or a very close family friend that has invited Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus goes to a wedding? We don't see this story in the other Gospels at all. Not because I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke thought, oh, that wasn't important or that wasn't necessary, but because ultimately God inspired them to write in the way that they did the story of what Jesus came and did for our salvation. And he inspired John in this way. But it's strange, isn't it? We don't often think about Jesus at a wedding, do we? And if you could, with your mind's eye, especially if you haven't watched, watched that show, The Chosen, yet, if you could, with your mind's eye, just imagine that you were at a wedding in Cana during that time, and you saw Jesus at the wedding, what would you suppose he'd be doing? I imagine that from what a lot of us here growing up and what maybe we've even established in our minds is that if Jesus was at something like a wedding, he'd probably be standing in the corner with his arms folded, waiting for for somebody to do something spiritual and meaningful, right? Hopefully that's not the image that you have, but that's certainly what I think of when I first go to this passage. What is Jesus doing at a wedding? Wedding's a party. Jesus isn't here to party. He was here to do what he said he was going to do, and everything is going to amount to the cross. Why does he stop and go to a wedding? And more importantly, I think, what was that like? I don't know what you think about weddings, but weddings are always a hit or miss for me. They're either a time where I come and I go, wow, these people are getting married, and this is a beautiful ceremony. Or I'm thinking, this is taking up my whole Saturday. 
I have to go to the church, then drive sometimes like an hour and a half away to where the reception's going to be, and then wait another hour for them to take their pictures at another location so that they can finally come back and we can act glad that they're here so that a DJ can come in and entertain us so that we can eat pretty lousy food. I mean, let's face it, wedding food is never really that good, is it? You know, one of my favorite weddings that I went to, this totally doesn't matter at all, but I'm going to say it just because it's fun. We went to a wedding of a couple that we went to college with. And when we got to the reception, we were kind of like cringing, like we don't know what the food is. And we got in there and there were these little tubs full of candy and like soda. And then there was like 15 pizzas. It looked like a youth group party, but it was one of the most fun, fun weddings that I've ever been to. So it was just simple. It was, it was a joy. It was a pleasure to be a part of. It wasn't overly produced. It wasn't worldly, for one thing. One of the challenges that we have as Christians is to recognize that there's a tension between the fact that when a wedding happens, God is actually bringing two people together and making them one flesh, like he shows us in Genesis. But so often, weddings that we are a part of are are happening without even an acknowledgement of who God is. They're they're there fixing what they believe is an immediate problem. Our problem is we're only dating. Our solution is we need to be married because things will get better. And they do. Marriage is good. Okay? We we should not disparage marriage as much as we do. We we joke about it. We act like it's, it's a ball and chain. We talk all sorts of bad things about it. But Jesus' presence at a wedding shows us what he thinks about a wedding. Duh, he invented them, right? What happened when God looked at Adam and he looked at all of his creation? He said, everything's very good, but one thing, it's not good that what? That man should be alone. And all the wives say, yep, right? It's not good. It's an incompletion. There's a problem there. There's a problem that needs to be addressed. And God addresses it. So Jesus is at the wedding. I don't think he's folding his arms in the back corner. I think that he's in there, he's dancing, he's celebrating, he's eating, he's hanging out with his friends and his family and having a good time because that's what you're supposed to do at a wedding. I I didn't say that's what you do at a wedding because sometimes weddings are really boring and lame, right? But at a good wedding where you know the people, where you're happy about what's going on, where this is a good thing, where God is being not only addressed or included, but praised as the one who is doing this wonderful thing, I think Jesus is having a good time. And then what happens? When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother, okay, Jesus' mother is at this wedding. Now, this is interesting because you don't hear a whole lot from Jesus' mother. Certainly in the Gospel of John, you have only two instances, but we don't get the birth story either in the Gospel of John, do we? We jump straight ahead into his ministry, and the first time we see Mary is at a wedding, and Mary comes up to Jesus and says, they have no wine. This is where we have a huge problem with how we read the Bible. So often we read the Bible mechanically and robotically, and you just read it like this. His mother, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I'm not trying to make fun of the way somebody reads. I'm just trying to say that in our minds... So often we're just reading informationally and just moving from point of story to point of story and not stopping and slowing down and considering what Mary is actually saying here. They ran out of wine. 
Whoop-de-doo, big deal. Run down to Walmart and get some more. You can't do that, obviously. Well, secondly, okay, they ran out of wine. Uh, maybe the party's over. What's the big deal there? Well, weddings, of course, as you probably know in the time, are, are very, very big deals. They still are today. But particularly when you consider the groom who takes a year long to prepare a home for his new wife, to prepare this, this could be a weeks-long festival at his own house, so he's pre preparing food and wine and everything that they need, that if they were to run out of wine, and if this is pointing out right here, there's, it's clear John isn't saying like, hey, they ran out of wine towards the end of the party and they were really bummed. No, this is happening too soon. Do you get that in the text? This is happening way too soon. They shouldn't be running out of wine. That's why Mary comes to Jesus. She's really coming on behalf of the groom and the bride and the, the families that have put this all together because they were in danger of social ruin for this. They were in danger of looking ungenerous. They were in danger of looking unprepared. I mean, something about this shows that they were unprepared, whether it was because Jesus showed up and he brought all his friends and that was more than they expected. Probably not, but there's some unpreparedness here. And what it could mean is, is that this new couple is starting out their new life together by making a statement to the rest of this very small town that they don't care that much about them. We're not very generous people. Don't come to my house and ask to borrow my rake because, remember, we ran out of wine at my wedding. You know how this goes because you have friends and relatives that always bring up something about your wedding or something about that birthday party or how they weren't invited to something and they never let it go. And if you don't have that story, it's because you are that person with that story, right? Or that, was, that was saying the thing. But Mary comes to Jesus. The wine is run out. There's a great danger of, of an embarrassment that's beyond just saying like, oh, this is, you know, his shoes were untied and he tripped coming down the stage. This is an embarrassment that is attached to the character of the family. Mary comes to Jesus, I imagine, in a panic. And she doesn't just simply say, hey, Jesus, just thought you should know. There's no more wine. Hope you're not thirsty. It's gone. She doesn't come to say that. She comes to say, there is no wine. They've run out of wine. There's a problem here. Why does Mary come to Jesus? You might say, okay, Mary comes to Jesus because she knows that Jesus is going to work miracles and she's, he's going to do something here. He's going to turn water to wine. I don't imagine that Mary has that exactly in her mind. This is the first of his signs, his public signs, right? I don't know exactly what Mary was expecting, but one thing is for sure, since Jesus is the head of the household, he's most likely being appealed to because of his resourcefulness. Because for however long since Joseph passed away, Mary has depended on Jesus for everything. And can you imagine that Jesus as a, as a son would ever let his mom down? I've let my mom down too many times. But Jesus would have been a perfect son to Mary. And in every instance when she would have come to him and say, said, hey, there's this problem, he would have said, I know what to do. Here's what we're going to do. And then fixed it. That doesn't, isn't to say that Jesus being your son means your life is easy and perfect and never has any problems. But as far as the responsibility of responding to the problems of life, Jesus had that nailed down. He knew what to do. But look at his response. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. How does that sound to you? Can you imagine? Let's just talk to the men for a second here. Can you imagine being a boy and having your mom ask you to fix something? And you say, 
woman, first of all, wow, I can't even, I'm scared just thinking about that, right? Woman? There's obviously a cultural bridge for us to cross here, isn't there? Woman? What does this have to do with me? Okay, well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? What does this have to do with me? I mean, I can immediately hear my mom saying, my mom, who's a wonderful lady, and I love very dearly, and she listens to the sermon, so I'm going to make sure to say that. But I can see my mom saying, um, I just showed you what it has to do with you because I want you to do something about it, right? Duh, that's what, he's, that was, that's what Mary's here to do. Jesus obviously isn't asking this question out of complete ignorance. He's making a very important statement to her. He's saying, hey, look, I know I'm your son. I'm going to honor you because that's according to the law. But there is no more inside track. My ministry has started. And if you're going to approach me, you need to approach me by faith. Not with any kind of motive of saying, I'm, you know, somebody told Mary, like, Mary, we're out of wine. What should we do? And she goes, I got this. I'm Jesus' mother. I mean, if you want anybody on your wedding planning committee, it's her, right? I will take care of this. I'll go talk to Jesus. Now, I don't think she did it so arrogantly as maybe as I just presented it to you. But in her mind, she probably was thinking, I'm a pretty important person. Jesus kind of says, look, mother... He says, woman, which was not as mean as it sounds to us. It wasn't disrespectful in any way. There's a lot of difficulty in translating, and that's why the ESV just sticks with woman. But it probably would have been something more like dear woman, or the NIV, I believe, translates it as dear woman. Um, This would have been respectful. It wasn't quite like saying ma'am like we do, but it was close to that. So he's not being harsh, but he is rebuking her. And this is where we find our problem this morning. We presume to know how Jesus' generosity should satisfy us. There's a lot of subtext here in this conversation, right? They ran out of wine. Woman, what does your request have to do with me? Mary goes to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And then that's the end. But we don't see facial expressions, do we? I mean, how much of communication happens with body language? A lot. And so you can't, you can't put in your mind that Jesus is coldly dismissing his mother here, especially because why? What's the biggest reason that we know that Christ is being compassionate and patient with her? Because he's going to do it. He does fix the problem. But he corrects the means by which Mary approaches, right? So approaching God with our concerns and our requests and our problems isn't a bad thing to do. But do you ever, like Mary, come to God with your laundry list of prayer requests that may even include, and here's how I expect you to fix this. Is that ever something you notice in your own heart? Or maybe you don't come with that attitude. Maybe, maybe it's not that at all, but maybe it's something that you've been praying for and praying for and praying for, and you know, you know that God hasn't heard you because he hasn't done the thing you expected him to do in response. We talk a lot about how God's answers to our prayer are yes or no or I'm not going to tell you yet, and we turn Jesus into a magic eight ball with these kinds of things. Because we move the relationship away from this and we turn it into a formula. If I can ask Jesus in the right way and do this all, figure this all out, there's no reason why when I give my requests that he shouldn't answer them the way I've designed for them to be answered. 
Well, maybe there's sin in my life. I got to deal with that. But once I get my sin figured out, then I can bring that same request and expect him to do exactly what I'd like him to do. We're not in charge in prayer, are we? But sometimes when we formulate our requests, we do just that. We decide, we presume to know how his generosity should satisfy us. But the joy and the generosity of Christ's kingdom is not a matter of privilege, and it's not a matter of human exploitation. It's not solving the Rubik's Cube of prayer, getting all the colors in line, and then saying, all right, Lord, here's my perfect prayer request that I know you'll respond in the way I'd like you to. Mary says, we need wine. Jesus' response is, it's not my time. And note here, too, as we said, Jesus is not being mean to her. He's not being cruel. And he's also not being overly spiritual, right? I've, I've tossed around the idea of using this as an example, but it's just too funny to avoid. There's this comedian, Christian comedian, so you know he's clean and funny and everything, right? There's this Christian comedian who talks about these hyper-spiritual people who he gives the example of, you know, talking to somebody and saying, hey, I can't find my keys. And their response is, you need the keys to the kingdom, right? Or, or you say, boy, you know, I, I'm really hungry. I, what do you want to get for lunch? Mm, I have bread to eat of that you do not know about. Quoting Jesus from the Gospel of John here, right? Jesus is not falling in line with that kind of pattern of the sort of elevated, prideful spirituality. But what he is doing is he's living constantly in the tension of the world that he has come to save and the world that he has come from and the power therein. Do you remember in the end of chapter 1 that he told Nathaniel, you believe in me because I said I saw you under the fig tree, but you're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're going to see me as the connection between eternity and time, of heaven and earth, of all good things and all the evil of this world because I'm going to take the sin of my people upon myself. When she asked him, to do something about this, his mind immediately went to the fact that she's wanting me to do something that is only in my power that no one else can do. And when I do that, my glory is going to pour out. There's no way that it can't. His generosity, the joy of the kingdom is going to come. He came to that wedding and, and, and was being a regular wedding guest. Did he know that this was going to happen? I mean, yeah, if you want to talk about omniscience and everything, we don't want to get too far into the hypostatic union here. There's questions there that would be a fun conversation. But it's clear that as he comes to the wedding, his intention and everything that he set up was to be a normal participant in the wedding. But Mary comes in and asks him to do something beyond that. In John 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus does not bend to the will of Mary. He doesn't bend to the will of Nick or to any of you. Even when we pray, even when we ask him to do something, he decides how he's going to respond. This was that, that passage I read, John 6, 38, was his response to those whom he had fed miraculously with the bread, the loaves, and the fish. Not bread, loaves, and fish, the bread, or the loaves, and the fish. And after he had fed them and left, they came looking for him. And they said, when did you get here? When they finally found him. And Jesus said, you're only looking, at, looking for me because you ate the loaves. But I'm not here to do your will. I'm not even here to do my own will. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me. So this is our weak perspective. 
because we're more focused on our problem in prayer than in seeking his will, we have difficulty in relating to our Savior. We have difficulty in aligning ourselves with his will because so much of the time our prayer life revolves around our own will. Rather than saying, Lord, I'm in this situation and I need to know how you would like me to act moving forward. Most often our prayer request is, Lord, I'm in this situation and I need you to get rid of it right now because it's too much for me. We would do ourselves a great service to set aside our own methods for God to fix things and just say, Lord, you brought this circumstance in the first place. What do you want me to do? Can you give me what I need to respond to this in a good way, in a way that glorifies you? And of course, his desire is to do just that. Well, in this wedding ceremony, there would have been a phrase that the rabbi said that might have been on the minds of people there. This wasn't from scripture. It was just something that the teachers would say. With no wine, there is no joy. The fact is that our sin has separated us from God's generosity. And it has thus separated us from him in whose presence is the fullness of joy. Our joy is gone because we don't have access to his generosity apart from Christ. And so far, as this problem infected and disturbed creation, that we not only miss out on his generosity and joy, but the Bible says that we actually incur his wrath, his judgment, and it produces misery in our lives rather than joy. The Bible says that when we sin against God, we are sinning against the eternal creator of all things and doing what is a capital crime with a capital punishment. And what Christ came to do was not simply to give us back what we had lost, but to give us something even greater, to give us himself. So Christ abundantly meets our needs, and he pours out joy and generosity in a way that points to and comes directly from his own glory. Look at how he fixes the situation. There's six water pots used for purification, cleaning the outside of the body so that you can participate in things. This was all according to man's tradition, that you should do these certain cleanings, that you shouldn't do this, that you shouldn't do that. You can read Mark chapter 4 if you want to know um, some more details on that. But Jesus specifically sees those pots, and he says, that's what I'm going to do. So he tells the servants to do what? First of all, let's say this. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Because something happened in that conversation. She didn't walk away saying, Jesus doesn't love me. He's not going to do anything for me. In some exchange in that conversation that we don't see, Mary has a change in her mind. Something switches in her to where she no longer says, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll get Jesus and he'll fix it exactly how I'd like him to. But she comes to Jesus and just says, this is the situation. What do we need to do? What should happen? And so she tells the servants, do whatever he tells them to. Isn't that good advice when it comes to Jesus? Do whatever he tells you to do. That's the Christian life. Do whatever he tells you to do. So there were six stone water jars there for purification. They each held 20 or 30 gallons. So I don't know, do the math on your own. Multiply that by six. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. 
He said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Stop there. This is what he decided to do. Jesus could have fixed this situation in a hundred different ways, couldn't he have? He could have snapped his fingers and then produced wine in jars or in cups or a table to set them on. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he goes according to his created order. He goes to the water that he created that fell from the heavens that gives life to the vine that creates the grapes that is squished down into the wine. Do you see the process here? He engages in the created order, but he does so in a way John MacArthur points out brilliantly that he he, he bypasses the curse And this is one of the wonderful things about what Jesus shows about himself in this. He is indeed the Son of God. And he is the Son of God who participates in a perfect, flawless creation. This wine that the the master of the feast is going to drink is not going to be like, oh, that's so-so, it wasn't the best, it was okay. This is going to be the best wine. Wouldn't you expect the one who created the vine to make the best wine? He is the pure provider. He takes these purification things and says, you focus on what is outside. You focus on your outside needs. There's no wine. What are we going to do? That doesn't need to be our focus. Our focus needs to be inside. And so Jesus takes this water that was meant to cleanse the outside of the body, and he turns it into wine, which we know is symbolic of something else, don't we? Something we're going to celebrate at the end of the service today. Side note to add to the hundred side notes that I've probably already done today. I didn't plan John 2, 1 through 12 for communion Sunday. It just happened. I think that's pretty cool because I believe in a sovereign God who even gives us the opportunity on a normal Sunday like this to participate in something that was pictured here because the wine represents his blood poured out for many. What is it that can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So they fill it with water. The water is turned into wine. His creative power has shown. He shows his creative power first in utilizing the servant's skills. Fill the jars with water. Now draw them up. His image bearers share a role in this process. Even if it's as simple as your dad working on your car and you standing there holding a flashlight, which was most of my mechanic experience. But it turns into a great picture. Because what God calls us to do in participating in his will is not a call that says, I'm so glad, Nick, that you could be there to preach that sermon because I don't know what I would do if you weren't there. All I'm doing right now is holding the flashlight on a very dark stage, (laughs) ironically, that I'm thankful for. But he shows his created order. He utilizes the servants, the ones made in his image. He shows his superiority to the Old Testament ways, to man-made ways of purification. With the created order, he uses the water that was initially rain that fell and caused the vine to grow. He shows his superior purity because those water jars were for purification for the outside of the body. But he shows that what he's going to do at the cross is cleanse our hearts from the very nature of sin. Hallelujah beyond what we think. And so often I think we are in danger of coming to his word, of coming to church, of coming to a Bible study, of coming to prayer and thinking, I know that I need to think about the gospel. I know I need to focus on the cross, but really I need to get my car fixed. And I don't know how that connects. It connects, doesn't it? 
Because at the cross, he fixes everything. He fixes our deepest need. And he shows us the best evidence that if Christ cares that much for us to go to the cross and give us an abundance of grace that would cover all of our sin, just like he gives an abundance of wine here, you know, up to a hundred and some odd gallons of wine. They probably didn't need that much. He gives far above and beyond what we need at the cross. Why? Why, Christian, would he withhold something good from you? even if it is your car broken down or with a transmission leak or an oil leak or a broken windshield wiper, whatever it might be. What do you lack today? See, showing us here that his generosity is abundant and it results in joy because it all comes from his glory. The more I see what he's done for me, the greater my satisfaction will be in his provision. Because the more I look at the cross, the more I'm convinced day by day that he will meet my needs every time I need him to. There's this great song by Sovereign Grace Music that we might sing someday. But in it, there's a line that says, Jesus, your mercy is all my boast. The goodness I claim, the grounds of my hope. Whatever I lack, it is still what I need most. Jesus, your mercy is all my boast. Joel 3.18 says, In that day, looking forward to the time when Christ would come, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Wine symbolizes joy, satisfaction, and God wants to be our satisfaction. He wants to be our joy, and he is abundantly generous with that for us. So the superior sign, the master, of the, house, the master of the feast comes to the groom and he says this interesting line he didn't expect to be saying at this wedding. Everybody always sets out the best stuff first and then the less stuff afterwards. But what you've actually done is you've saved the best for last. This is a great generosity. This is a great kindness that you've done. That you've gone so far in your preparation for your new life, your, your, your wife, their family, their friends, all of them coming together. You've been abundantly generous in this feast. And he doesn't even know. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. It says before that, he did not know where it came from. But the evidence was abundantly clear. This was an abundance of generosity. This was joy-inducing provision. And that is what Christ has for us because ultimately, he is the master of the feast. He is the bridegroom. He is the one who has gone before and prepared a place for you, prepared a means for you to get there through the cross, prepared abundant joy. And when you see him face to face, you will not find him unprepared for the wedding. It would be a glorious wedding feast of the Lamb prepared for all those who believe in him, those who are his. And because it is John's purpose to give a testimony of Jesus in this book that we might all believe, I would implore you again today to see the glorious reason for you to testify to what Christ has done in your life, to provide you through his generosity wonderful joy. I mean, you can testify. We think so much about the setting and getting everything perfect, and I know I do this too. But we can testify even in response to a question of how you're, how's your day going? Not to be like those super hyper-spiritual people like, well, this and this. But if you have that true abiding joy in Christ, which you do, and it doesn't mean that you're smiley all the time and that everything's great and you're skipping through life, but that when life hits you, you are, as Paul said, sorrowful, yet 
ever rejoicing. There's a yet in between there. And you can express that to people. You can give the reason for your hope that lies within you. Give reason for why you're able to move on in life. You're able to overcome these problems and challenges that you find and trust that he will satisfy you at every turn. Verse 2.11 will be our close. Look at verse 11 with me one more time. This, the first of his signs, perhaps the chief of his signs, the most important of his signs until the cross. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, the natural outcome of doing a sign, of engaging in the world. When God engages in the world, glory pours out. And his disciples did what? They believed in him. The end goal, not just to make the wedding nicer, but that they might believe that he is the son of God, the true bridegroom, the creator God, who was in the beginning with the word and all things were with the Lord and all things were made through him. The greatest thing that the Lord could do for you today would be to manifest his glory because when he does, it creates faith. That is the best thing he can do for you. That's what you should be praying for. Christ is the generous bridegroom, never running out of the means to accommodate not only his guests, but also to satisfy the joy and provide for in every way his bride with his love. He's prepared a home for his people. We need to see his glory and enjoy, call others to live under his generosity. So recognize your need for his joy and generosity today. Look to him to grant that in his own way, not necessarily in yours. Anticipate satisfaction in him. Don't demand it. Don't expect it with a harsh folding of the arms, but anticipate with joy that you will be satisfied in him. And lastly, testify to others of that joy in his generosity. Invite people to the wedding. Invite them not just to be a spectator, but a participant.